Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. Today, I'm welcoming Brian McLaren to the show. A former college English teacher, Brian was a pastor for 24 years. Now he's an author, activist, public theologian, and a frequent guest lecturer for gatherings in the United States and internationally. His work has been covered in Time Magazine, Newsweek, USA Today, The New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, and many other media outlets. The author of more than 15 books, including... Faith After Doubt, A New Kind of Christian, and what we'll be talking about today, Do I Stay Christian? Brian is a faculty member of the Living School at the Center for Action and Contemplation and lives in Florida. Welcome to the show, Brian. What else would you like our listeners to know about you? Well, I live in Southwest Florida, and I just got an email uh, yesterday to find out my availability for my 15th year of being a sea turtle monitor. So I help wow. uh, go out uh, like one morning each week and walk a six-mile stretch of beach to see if any sea turtles laid eggs, and then we protect the nests and that sort of thing. So that's something fun that I get to do. Nice, nice. So I've already had you on the show before, and listeners, if you're interested in hearing about uh, Brian's kind of faith journey, I welcome you to go back and listen to that episode. I wanted to kind of hear if you would share, Brian, just a little bit about how these last couple of years have influenced, challenged your faith and um, something that's been meaningful you for you during this time. Yeah. Well, really, you know, this book, Do I Stay Christian? That, that question, I think, has been asked by more and more people in recent years. It just feels to me like there are so many people who look at what Christians are doing in the world and they feel... Uh, they, they, they feel deep dissatisfaction about whether they want to be associated with, with that uh, or not. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I feel that sadness too. You know, I, I mentioned I live near the Gulf of Mexico. Our sea level rises about an eighth of an inch every year. So the wow. fact that I'm coming up on um, 16, almost 16 years living here, you know, the sea level has risen two inches in the time. I've, I've lived here. So it, it's this sense that the world is in trouble and so many of our religious people are just going on with their kind of religious knitting <laughs> and yeah. they're, they're, they're keeping their, they're concerned about their own services and offerings and attendance and don't seem to be that concerned about the fate of the earth and what that does to their neighbors. So that sort of mm-hmm. thing I think is something I've been grappling with. Yeah. What has kept you grounded as you wrestle well, with those questions? You know, I have my own kind of spiritual practice or disciplines that kind of helped me it really through the years have been uh, indispensable. Um, and these days, uh, just being out in the outdoors and sensing the beauty of creation and how beautiful it is and how worth saving, that always, you know, has a grounding effect in me, as does 
every experience of kindness of another human mm. being. To me, to see a human being be, be kind, and I keep my eyes open for that. I was just on a series of plane flights the other day, and I just try to keep my eyes open. And it happens. If you're looking for it, it's happening all around, you know. So the, those are a couple of things that help me. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I'm thinking, I don't know if you've met him or come across his work. Bruce Reyes Chow had a book that came out probably a couple of years ago, maybe, in defense of kindness. I think a really important thing. It's so true. I love Bruce, and that's such an important book. And yeah, exactly right. Thanks for, for uh, mentioning him, because he really, and, and I know him, and he that's something he lives as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about your book. Uh, the book is Do I Stay Christian? A Guide for the Doubters, the Disappointed, and the Disillusioned. And I'm there's so much to talk about here. Um, you kind of hinted at what inspired the book. So if you want to share more there, but I'm kind of curious. In the introduction, what really struck me was how you talk about Christianity not referring to one simple thing, but a complex mixture of things. And I'm I'm curious yes. if you want to share more about that for the listeners. Sure. Well, um, it, it, this really flowed out of a conversation I had with a group of clergy uh, after I spoke at an event once, and um, we just started talking about the struggle we all had with the word Christian and how yeah. we felt we needed to modify it or say not that kind of Christian or something <laughs> like that. And we realized that part of the problem was that the word can mean so many different... It can mean opposite things. It mm -hmm. can mean people who love refugees, and it can mean people who hate refugees. It can mean people who are the first to show up for a transgender child uh, and his parent, his or her parents to make sure that child is safe and the family safe. It can mean the first people to try to take away protections for transgender children. It yeah, can mean yeah. the first people to show up for the environment or the last people to show up for the environment. <laughs> so we talked about how... There's kind of a historical um, uh, uh, definition of Christianity. It's a historical or cultural phenomenon. There are institutional dimensions. I'm a Christian because I belong to this institution. Yeah. There's doctrinal definitions. I belong because I uh, uh, subscribe to a certain set of doctrines uh, or liturgical or pragmatic dimensions like I observe these holidays and I observe these rituals. That means I'm a Christian. And uh, we could go on. I mean, experiences, I've had this spiritual experience that makes me a Christian, yeah. or affinity, here's where I feel that I belong, or m morals that I adhere to, or whatever. There are just so many different definitions, and that's part of the challenge that we just have to acknowledge. None of us gets to say the word means for everybody what I want it to mean. <laughs> it means it means such different things for for different people. You know, looking at this broad list, I'm fairly big tent in my definition. You know, someone who wants to be a Christian, I'm a Christian with you too, type thing. But looking at this list, I can really see how, um, you know, if, if they're Christian, as we've seen in the last uh, couple of years, right? How like the term evangelical Christian is almost more of a political label than in a religious one. Yes. How, how someone in that kind of context is saying, I'm a Christian could look at someone like me or you and say, you're not a Christian. We're not Christians together. And that makes it really hard. In fact, one of the things that's really interesting as we're having this conversation almost to the day, 
a hundred years ago, a, a famous sermon was given in New York City by a fellow named Harry Emerson Fosdick. Yeah. And it was called, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And what was going on exactly a hundred years ago is a group of religious leaders had created a list of five, what they called fundamentals. And they were out to make sure that if you didn't subscribe to all five, they would kick you out of their denomination. And there were these purges that were, uh, you know, that that uh, spread f- through denominations. And so this sort of thing happens um, uh, where people try to say, we're going to make up the new definition. And if you don't fit, we're going to get you out. Well, it reminds me, you must have been on Twitter this morning seeing our friend and colleague, Dinah Butler-Bass. I need to try to get her back on the pod to talk about that, but uh, recommend her work for sure. It's yes. such a fascinating conversation. Yes, and of course, she's a, a church historian, so she yeah. can take us into real depth on yeah. on just that issue alone. Well, I recommend, I think the introduction alone uh, sold the book for me, for sure. So oh. if you read nothing else, folks, just grab the book, read the introduction. You'll want to read the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, so moving on, I think one thing, that really hit me. And and interestingly enough, I was reading this book, the first half at least of the book. And similarly, I was reading uh, a segment from a book as from, I think the word it was, religion as a, as a public health Mm. con something, something related to religion as a public health determinant. Excuse me. Yes. Yes. And reading your book, (laughs) it very much negatively framed my understanding is uh, religion as a public health determinant, <laughs> at least the first half. Um, yeah. And boy, oh boy, are we seeing that kind of right now? And I want to ask you some more on this later. Um, but you have something kind of the first half of the book is kind of on some some reasons, you know, why not to stay Christian. And I think one thing that really stuck out to me was your you talk about the cult of innocence. Uh, you yeah. reference the pro life movement. But also, I think if I remember correctly, you kind of reference how we can all uh, make cult of innocences yes. for ourselves. Yes. Yeah, and, and I should say, I'm not saying that everyone in the pro-life movement has the same motivations, I, but I, mm-hmm. I I was involved in the early years of the pro-life movement. I grew up in a fundamentalist background. Back then, to be fundamentalist meant you didn't get involved in politics. So for me mm-hmm. to join the be involved in the pro-life movement was becoming more liberal, so to speak, in that, mm. you know, to get involved in politics itself was yeah. a, a sort of a liberal thing to do. But um, what I have discovered in the writing of this book, uh, it, Lauren, it was sort of a, uh, suddenly I, I was able to put into words something I've been trying to express. I realized the role of shame in a lot of our religious communities. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have various ways of shaming people. For some people to call them a liberal is to shame them. For other people yeah. to call them a conservative is to shame them. Um, and seems like these people, days to call someone a moderate is almost to shame them too. <laughs> that's right. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, and of course, this is true in religious contexts, and in some ways now on social media, it's like you know these. It's like these orgies of shaming people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And. Um, and what it has made me realize is when people feel shame, they have to do something about it. Mm. Uh, they they either join in the shame game and they shame back or they find somebody else to shame. 
or they, they find a way that they need to feel innocent again. And one of the ways that people frequently feel innocent is by finding someone that they can identify as a victim Mm-hmm. And then they defend the victim and the innocent victim's innocence. The way I said it is they get a transfusion of innocence from the victim. But then you identify the person, the villain who is oppressing or harming the victim. And mm-hmm. then by attacking the villain, you also get a bolster to your innocence. And mm-hmm. this helped me. Of course, one term for this is scapegoating. Mm-hmm. where we find somebody to blame and that makes us feel righteous, you know? Yeah. So shame and blame are obviously int- intricately related, but this idea of a transfusion of innocence from an innocent victim, it struck me how powerful that is. And what, and, and here's the irony when we think about Christian identity. Let's say that I notice that Christians are shaming a lot of people. And so then I say, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. In other words, I want to separate myself from the shame of them shaming people so that I can achieve my innocence, right? So ironically, yeah. you can be running away from shaming and fall into the cult of innocence. And Boy, as I good. as I tried to grapple with this issue of innocence, it just made me appreciate in a new way this radical move of Jesus to define his goodness, not as being separated or apart from or keeping his distance from anything shameful, but rather he demonstrated solidarity. So the leper who's seen as dirty and smelly and infectious and diseased, he touches. Or or the sex worker who's seen as morally impure, he lets her touch his feet and she and he he defends her dignity you know mm-hmm. i mean you just see this again and again jesus approach is not is not distance for the sake of innocence it's closeness for the sake of solidarity you know i can't help but when you're just talking about this especially when you you brought the idea of jesus as hearing soteriology mm-hmm. um and uh, a transfusion of innocence. We don't have time to talk about it, but I think there's a lot there for sure. Well, and if in fact, I think this is when I, the more I grappled with this, the more I realized this is something that happened in the 12th century in the Christian faith, that mm. Jesus started being used as a victim. And this is where it really is tragic. Um, the idea is we empathize with Jesus' suffering and then we hate the people who killed him. In oh, fact, yeah. Uh, and, wow. And, and we now are on the side of the innocent Jesus, and we're hateful and judgmental, absolutely unchristlike mm-hmm. in our attitudes towards the people. You know, the people who killed him, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That wasn't a revengeful, hateful attitude. Right. Um, but, but, and this has happened and been deeply, deeply ingrained in many strains of Christianity through doctrines like penal substitutionary atonement theory and so mm-hmm. on. But uh, but there are other examples of it too. Uh, a, a wonderful scholar, Rita uh, Brock, wrote a book yeah, some years ago yeah. called Saving Paradise. And in that book, she talked about how this was a, a tactic of 
authoritarian leaders in the Middle Ages, huh. um, uh, like Charles uh, Charlemagne, he, uh -huh. he wanted to muster troops in Southern Europe to go attack the people in Northern Europe. And so he said, these are heretics. They're the people, they're the kinds of people who killed Jesus. So wow. in the name of revenge for Jesus being killed, he was able to motivate people's religion to go commit violence. Uh, yeah. So it's a, it's a deep seated thing. And I, I and I'm glad that, uh, that, that this struck you because it seems to me to be an important thing for us to grapple with now. Wow. That's pretty cool. Uh, I, I didn't even, I didn't pick it up first time reading the book, but just hearing you, it's kind of like blowing my mind. So good mm -hmm. stuff. You know, uh, your conversation there about just the history. I mean, what we're talking 900 years at least of just problematic uh, yeah. folks acting in the name of Christianity. You highlight many examples in the book, but something that, and I, I imagine some of your readers might struggle with, uh, I guess it depends on their framework, right? Perspectives is you state that the problems that plague white Western Christianity may simply be human problems. Hmm. Tell me more about well, that if you can. Sh sure. So I wouldn't want to reduce it, but here's what I would say. Mm -hmm. These problems that we see in Christianity are reflective of problems in the human psyche and in human society. Mm -hmm. um, so we can see this kind of cult of innocence among Christians, but there actually is something quite similar in one part of, of Islam. Mm -hmm. uh, and we might even see something like this at work among, uh, well, in fact, I think the atheist communist uh, leader, sure. Paul Pot in Cambodia, yeah. used a similar kind of cult of innocence. His version was country people who work on farms are innocent Mm -hmm. and and pure and city people are are, are dangerous in fact I, I think he's the most popular talk show host or TV um, host right now Tucker Carlson does yeah. this constantly it's one of his most common themes that there are these coastal elites mm -hmm. who um, they're dangerous and evil and the rest of us are the innocent victims so this plays again and again and again in human society and I would wish that the Christian faith were helping us to not deal, to not get sucked into this. But all mm -hmm. too often, uh, our our Christian faith, in, in some ways, even plays the game in a, in a in a in a an even worse way. All, all the worse because it seems to me to be so out of sync with our founder. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's you you present an interesting dynamic when we think about that kind of cult of innocence of standing above perhaps in, in judgment and condemnation and shaming, you present an intriguingly different model of solidarity versus a supremacy of, you know, yes. we're the, we're the holders of truth. We're the, the elite. And you suggest the model of solidarity for Christianity. And I'm curious to hear more uh, what that looks like to you. So you could take uh, many different routes to this, but you could take a, a, a more sociological route to this where you say, listen, 
If what we do when we see evil is we separate from it and try to shame it and throw it away, Mm -hmm. unless you plan to commit genocide, you can't get rid of the other, right? Hmm. And even if you do, now you you think you've made the world a better place by (laughs) committing mass violence. Yeah, that's a problem. So you can't get rid of people. You can't throw them away. They continue to exist. And so you realize that there's this sense, well, the way Dr. King said it, he said the only real way to get rid of an enemy is to turn him into a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's maybe the, the sort of public or even political or social or relational way of dealing with solidarity, of seeing the, the value and importance of solidarity. Um, uh, let me just say before I move on, I, I experienced this in a really interesting way. I was with an anti-racism activist, African-American, and she happens to be Buddhist. And she said to me, we were talking once, and she talked about her empathy for white people and why white people were so afraid and acted as they did. And Mm. I just thought to myself, what an amazing thing for an African-American and who's is by choice Buddhist and, and is dealing with very often white Christians who mm-hmm. do not show respect to her as an equal. She had empathy for them. In a sense, she was trying to experience solidarity with them. So it's very, wow. very powerful. Yeah. Um, she was trying to understand what makes them tick and why they would act this way. And her assumption is we're all human beings. We, we shouldn't act this way toward each other. What could ever happen to someone to make them act this way? So that's, you know, outside. But there's an, a more internal route to solidarity too. And it's something that we often experience through contemplative practice or that the mystics describe in, a, in many, many different ways. But it's the same essential experience where we realize on some deep level, we're connected to everybody. Mm-hmm. That um, we're many different candles, but it's one flame that's burning in us all. We're, you can even have an almost scientific understanding that if you go back far enough in evolution, we're all descendants of the same, you know, people. We're all related. We are all, we might be distant cousins, but we're all related. And this sense of deep connection that, that I think many times we're graced with deep experiences of, then we, we, we look at people and and we can't just hate them. We can't just write them off. We can't throw them away. They're our brother, they're our sister, they're our family, they're our, they're our relations. I know for many of my colleagues, the Imago Dei, speaking of a, a biblical yes. uh, foundation, is kind of the, yes. the foundation of what uh, shapes their kind of faith and, and dynamic to treat people equally and authentically and wholly. And, and this would be exactly this, that when, when we learn to train ourselves to say that when I meet a person, I'm looking for the Imago Dei. I'm, yeah. I'm, and my assumption is it's there. No, it's nobody is without it. It's part right. of what it means to be a human being. Um, yeah. And this is, you can see this isn't, it's not just an idea. It's actually a practice that we learn to feel and recognize. In fact, that brings to mind a, a passage that's always intrigued me in the New Testament, it's in 2 Corinthians, and Paul says something like this, from now on, we cannot recognize anyone according to the flesh. In other words, mm-hmm. when we see a person, we don't just say, 
oh, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, rich, poor, cool, uncool, you know, sexy, unsexy. We don't make, we, we can't see people that way anymore. Um, we, we are a new creation and we see them uh, in, in a new way. And that, that's where these practices that I think are so important for us to move forward without continuing to inflict the damage that it's all too familiar to us. They're deeply spiritual practices, you know. They, they, and this is the kind of work I think that our faith communities should be doing, helping us learn to see people this way. Yeah. Now, speaking of the Bible, you have an interesting quote or interesting uh, perspective on the Bible that I wanted to highlight. You, you reference, if I understand it correctly, the Bible as a floor rather than a ceiling. And I think at first... At first glance, folks might say, oh, yeah, the Bible's the foundation of my faith. But I think, like you referenced, it can often be kind of a, a ceiling. Talk more about what you mean by that. Okay, so let's imagine we lived about uh, 4,000 B.C., it's, it's somewhere around the time of Abraham. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a saying then, and in fact, we find it in the Hebrew Scriptures, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, if we accepted that statement, um, what it would mean is if somebody makes you blind in one eye, you make them blind in one eye. And if we were to say that statement was an improvement over the current uh, moral uh, uh, standard, the current moral norm was if somebody makes you blind, you kill them and their and their family too, yeah. right? And, and so that statement in its context would be a way of saying, we got to move away from this barbarity, you know. But if you stay there, uh, Jesus comes along and says, you've heard it said, an eye and eye for a tooth for a tooth. You know, I, I say to you, you know, don't return evil for evil. If someone strikes you on one side of the, uh, of the face, turn the other cheek. He's saying, don't be involved in in vengeful violence at all, right? So he takes us a step farther. And that's what I mean by a floor. When we have moral guidance in the Bible, I don't think we should see it as this is as good as people can ever be. Mm-hmm. I think we should say at, that God is always inviting us to the next step of growth. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it doesn't provide a ceiling for us. It shows how, in a sense, the floor has been moving up, how the standard has been rising um, uh, through through time. And then a lot of people read the New Testament, and they say, oh, well, that's our ceiling. That's the last word. Right. But even in the New Testament, Jesus says something like, hey, guys, uh, I have a lot more things I want to teach you, but you're just not ready for it. <laughs> so uh, the Spirit will guide you when you're ready. And uh, several other writers in the New Testament, Paul and John, make similar statements about that the Spirit will continue to guide us in knowing what to do. E- even Jesus, you know, Jesus never says uh, circumcision will be optional because we want to now get rid of the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Um, Paul comes along and he's the one who does that work. Uh, and Nowhere in the in the in the New Testament do we find an absolute prohibition against slavery. Mm-hmm, Thank mm-hmm. God we are you know moving on. But if people have this simplistic understanding of the Bible, they can use the Bible to justify absolutely unjustifiable things, and that's part of I think why many people want to leave Christianity because they just feel that kind of morality 
is uh, is not going to help us. Yeah, I can't remember if I read it. It probably was in your book or somewhere else, but I think it was in your book. Just this, I think, you know, obviously a big part of your book, at least as I understand it, is on this like, you know, leaving the faith and deconstructing, whether it's worth reconstructing. Um, mm. And I think that's what's so helpful about this framework is that the Bible can be a quote unquote stumbling block for so many people when we're wrestling with things like inerrancy and problematic passages and, and, you know, lack of prohibitions on slavery. Uh, As you said, when it's seen as like the ceiling, as this is what a perfect moral life looks like um, rather than, I don't know, it would be like a, again, I'm thinking of the word foundation, not as like, as like a, this is what you build on. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense in your metaphor. Well, well, you know, one way to think of it is it's it's a little bit like a diary or it's a little bit like a history that says we did this and learned this and then mm, we did this yeah. and learned this and then we did this and learned this and and we see the layers building in, in the Bible. Now, there's an example I give in, in a previous book I wrote called The Great Spiritual Migration. Um, when my, my I'm 66 and... Um, so when my wife and I were in our 20s and she was pregnant with our first child, a friend gave us a book on pregnancy. Uh, you know, and this was an older friend. She said, look, I'm not going to have any more children. My mother gave me this book. You can have this book. So the book was written in the 1960s. Wow. And the book said, uh, nicotine has been scientifically proven to relax smooth muscle tissue. So we encourage you to smoke one cigarette a day through your pregnancy. And and when we read this in the 1970s, we just, uh, late 70s, we were mortified. Now, here's the interesting thing. There ought to be a medical library someday, somewhere, where that book is preserved. Mm-hmm. Not because we want people to follow that advice, but because we need to show the record of how our medical knowledge has changed over time. And I think that's what we have in the Bible. We, we actually see over time in the Bible, self-correction happen mm-hmm. and people learn and they try this and then they're ready for this. You know, that that's the sort of thing that I think we see. I think that's one of the best things that like folks like Jared Bias and Pete Enns have done is kind of help yes. folks reframe uh, what the Bible is and is not and that kind of thing. I'm such a fan of uh, Jared and Pete and we need this so much. There is so much at stake right now because people are using the Bible to justify barbaric things right now. And, um, uh, and look, you can do a lot of barbaric things without the Bible too. Um, you know, that does, there's no corner of the market on barbarism, but boy, it, it's especially bad when people think they're serving God and do great harm. And, and we, uh, I think if, if, if we're going to stay Christian, we have a moral obligation uh, to de-weaponize um, the, the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Mel, let's let's get to that that ultimate question of do I stay Christian? And I'll confess, Brian, like I'm an ordained clergy person. I'm still very much in the the go team Christian perspective. So that's my bias. Like I I yes, want folks yes. to stay Christian. Uh, that being said, I understand you leave space for folks not to. But I think the intriguing question you have or suggestion perhaps is that a lot of people leave Christianity when really uh, all 
I think as you say, all they needed to do was to leave a conforming, confining, excuse me, form or stage of Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. So what what tends to happen, especially among more fundamentalist uh, Christians, and by the way, this happens among more fundamentalist Jews and more fundamentalist Muslims and uh, and other uh, communities as well, is the most conservative group says they're the only legitimate group and any other form is almost worse than being a heathen, right? It's, 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 they, they, their greatest enemy are their members of their same religion who aren't of their stripe. And if you're brought up in that setting, then the only form of Christianity that's open to you is that fundamentalist form. Um, whether it's a fundamentalist Catholic or a fundamentalist Protestant or, or fundamentalist Orthodox. And one of the things, one of the, uh, the chapter I write in, in some depth about Jesus, I, I, I talk about the fact that you, you don't have to be a biblical literalist in order to, to be a Christian. Um, and many people leave Christianity when what they really need to leave is literalism or fundamentalism. And there are ways of being a Christian that don't require you to be a fundamentalist. There are good ways and, and, and multiple ways. And, um, and when fundamentalists make it sound like they have the only legitimate way to be Christian, they're free to think that, but yeah. the rest of us aren't obligated to agree with them. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking again. I'm thinking, perhaps as a pastor here, like I don't even know where to start because I think that's one of the challenging things. Is again, I I experienced this growing up as a independent fundamental Baptist. Like, yes. really, it was like you say, like the liberals were were were. Excuse me, I can't get that. Were worse than the you know than the unsaved than the unchristian. Yes. Um, like, it, I feel like I see that all the time. Is folks just know one way of doing Christianity and say this must be it? I mean, is there any hope? Because it seems like folks can be so um, hidden or uh, secluded from perspective in those kind of churches that they just assume it's this way or no way. Yeah, well, here, here's the irony. You're an example that there's hope, and I'm yeah, an example that there's hope because we both grew up in these kind of, in these kind of backgrounds, and uh, and uh, so yes, there 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 definitely is hope, but it's not hope that says so. Let's just be complacent. I think it's mm -hmm. hope that means we have to actively and winsomely let people know that there are options. Again, it goes back to your point about your metaphor of ceiling versus floor. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I personally at least feel a lot more compelled by something that's supporting me, giving me options to reach out rather than a limiter. Yes. Yes. I, I wrote a book uh, some years ago called we make the road by walking. And another mm -hmm. way to say, say the same thing is the history or tradition that we have inherited if we think of it as a path that's brought us up to this point. Um, but the path doesn't exist beyond this point uh, because it's the job of people in each generation to extend the path in their own time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so we receive our past not as a ceiling. You can't do any better than this. No. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the things that really I don't think I ever said as clearly as I was able to say in this book is that every one of us receives an inherited version of the Christian faith. 
And when we pay attention to the flaws in what we inherited, when we are honest about the flaws and we learn more about many that have been kept a secret, we realize we not only have permission to improve the version of the faith that we inherited that we pass on to others, we have a moral obligation to improve it. Mm. And uh, that's a, a big part of the challenge that I think, you know, I, I, I would imagine it's why you're a minister and why you're a podcaster and it's why <laughs> I, I'm a writer and doing the things I'm doing too. Why I call the podcast Future Christian because I'm like, we, we need to do this better in the future. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Yes. Well, uh, don't give away the whole theme of the book here, but uh, I have two more questions here before we take a break. Um, you can tease out your answer here for the first one if you'd like. How do I, how do we stay Christian? Well, what I'm, what, the book is structured around three parts. Part one is no, and, and answering the question with a no. And I think we have to take seriously, if we're going to stay Christian, I think it would be very wise for us to understand why many people don't mm. or can't. That's good. Um, yeah. And if we do that, it will help us make sure if we pay real attention to the flaws and blind spots and weaknesses and, and harm done by our religion, it will help us moving forward to not repeat those, those mistakes. Look, I, I have to be honest. I, I am worried that the Christian faith could commit worse atrocities in the next 10 years than it's ever committed before. Yeah. Um, and uh, and for that reason, if we're going to stay Christian, I don't think we should skip over paying attention to our mistakes. And f- that will be humbling for us, and it will help us to say we need to learn lessons from our past. The biblical word for this is repentance. Mm-hmm. It will help us have second thoughts about what we've inherited and what we currently think. Um, and uh, in part two of the book, which is, yes, I try to offer some of the ways that I think we can in good faith remain Christian. Um, and one of them is that we will not be silent when we see our fellow Christians doing things that we see to be harmful and, and dangerous and unloving and unchristlike. We have, we have an obligation to not just give tacit permission by our silence. Um, so it, I talk about those sort of things in, in part two of the book. But the last third of the book is called How. And it basically says, look, some of us are going to stay Christian. Some of us aren't. The next morning we have to wake up and decide how are we going to live? What kind of people do we want to be? And that to me is the real question. Um, And I actually think that's the question that Jesus would be most happy about us asking anyway, not whether we wear a label. The way he said it is, you know, what kind of fruit does the tree of your life bear? And that to me is the question looking forward that, that I think is, is a, a, a morally wise and good and theologically sound uh, question to grapple with. One more question I want to ask you if I can before we take a break. This is not related to the book per se, but <clears throat> I keep seeing so many uh, good, faithful pastors leaving church ministry, and maybe I should say that differently. I don't believe they're leaving ministry per se, leaving professional ministry roles perhaps, 
uh, literally talking with a friend about that today, uh, someone else leaving. What, what advice, you know, do you have for pastors as, as someone who's been in ministry a long time yourself, thinking about this context we've talked about, what's happening today? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I actually wrote a special appendix at the back of the book for pastors because this is not an easy time to be a pastor. So one of the first things I would say is if you need some time away, please take it. Please take it. If, a lot of us have been, you know, it's kind of like warfare, and we have a lot of people who have been wounded in battle. We have a lot of people who have been harmed. And I, I think of a friend of mine who called me one day, and he said, Brian, I'm just calling you. I'm going to write my letter of resignation today. He was a pastor of a, a church nearby where I was a pastor. And I was so sad to think of him gone because I I relied on him as a friend and colleague. And I tried to convince him not to quit. And he said, Brian, I just was with my uh, counselor I've been going to because I've been suffering from depression. And he said, my counselor looked over her notes and she said, over the last year, every single month that I've come in, I'm less healthy mentally and emotionally. Wow. And she said to me, you're going to have to make a decision if you want to stay in this job and have less to offer your wife and children mm. or if you're going to, to, to stop. And, and as soon as he said that, I thought, he needs this time away, right? Yeah. Um, so that's the first thing I'd say. And there's no shame in that. It, 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 you're, you're making a wise decision. If, you know, we have a reflex in our body. If you put your hand on a hot stove, your hand pulls away because yeah. there's something in us that says, don't result in don't let this result in more tissue damage than is necessary. But then the other thing I would say is, um, you know, don't bring permanent solutions to temporary problems. In other words, give yourself the time you need to heal, and don't b burn bridges or lock uh, or or you know throw a grenade behind you to blow up the bridge behind you. Um, keep your options open because you know, better days uh, might be ahead and there might be uh, uh, new options that open up to you that right now you can't imagine because of what you've been through. Some good thoughts there. Uh, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Brian McLaren. And Brian, thanks so much for your time here in conversation. Um, I wanted to ask you if I could, just as we kind of finish this out, you kind of mentioned just the, I think your, your words were pretty chilling there about Christianity having the, the potential in the next 10 years to do kind of greater damage, you know, than what we've done historically, you know, thinking about the current realities of Christian nationalism, the, the current, as we record this of, of Roe v. Wade, um, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Well, I, I mentioned this in the book. I think, I think historians, if if the human race survives this uh, tough time, I think historians will look back and say, in the 1400s, the Christian, even before the 1400s, but especially in the 1400s, the Christian religion unleashed an era of colonialism, mm -hmm. where they felt their theology led them to believe that God gave them an exception. They became exceptional. They had an exception from the normal moral rules. So they're allowed to enslave other people. They're allowed to conquer other people. 
they're allowed to, and they're allowed to exploit the earth. And they're allowed to take resources from the earth faster than they can be replenished. And they're allowed to pump out wastes and toxins faster than they can be detoxified by natural processes. And I, I think that if the Christian faith is going to survive and if the human race is going to survive, we're going to have to have this reckoning with the unsustainable form of Christianity that has been dominant um, for over 500 years now. And, and, and that will be that. And a lot of people aren't willing to do that. They're doubling down, you know, you hear a drill, baby drill, all that sort of thing. And, um, and, and Christians who are willing to see all the faults in everyone else and will not, and, and they want to get out of the textbook, anything that tells the truth about mistakes that they've made in the past. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's shameful. You and should know this living in Florida, right? Oh my God. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, and so many times these are either they're Christians coming up with the idea mm-hmm. or they're, they're authoritarians who know how to manipulate Christians by, you know, by propaganda. Yeah. Um, and the flip side of this is we could be on the verge of a kind of renaissance and reawakening so that at the end of this, we'll have a new relationship with the earth that's deeply rooted in our faith. And we'll have a new relationship with the poor and we'll have a new relationship with people who are different from us. We'll have a new relationship with people of other religions, not one of colonization and conquest and domination and supremacy, but as we were saying before, a relationship of solidarity. That to me is a beautiful possibility in the midst of all the danger. And I I have to ask too, again, as someone who's ordained clergy person, one of the things I wrestle with is, is this something I can financially stake a career to? Um, I think, is it Ryan Burge who's, who put out some statistics recently on just the, the Christian trends in America, especially among mainline, just kind of like a lot of downhill stuff. What, yeah. I mean, what do you have? This is perhaps me asking personally, like what, what do you have for thoughts on, you know, what the next 10, 15 years of Christianity will look like for, for churches, for, for clergy, that kind of thing. Well, I think we're in, I'm going to say something that is cynical right now. Okay. (laughs) I think, I think if you want a fast track to, uh, religious prosperity, build your religion on hate and fear and shame and revenge and be willing to sell your soul to Donald Trump or the next Donald Trump that comes along and you'll be able to find people who want to come to your church and, and uh, because you'll be feeding something that's a kind of cultural phenomenon that's going on. It's not just happening here in America. It's yeah. happening in Brazil. It's happening in Philippines. It's happening in, you know, many uh, hungry happening in Russia, many other places, this resurgence of authoritarianism with religious puppets or, what some people might say, religious lapdogs who are yeah. glad to get the crumbs from the table as long as they comply. Um, and if you don't want to take that path, which I know you don't, then what I'd say is we inherited an assumption that there was a career in ministry that w- would pay our bills. And if we just were good, decent at our job, it would all be taken care of. I think that will not be true yeah. uh, in the coming years. And what that 
means is a, is freedom in a certain way. Instead of other people defining our role, I think we're going to have to define our role. And that might also mean that we're going to have to take more responsibility for our financial income. And, and what that might mean is that we have to be more creative. And, and so part of our income will come from this church and part of our income might come from that church and part of our income might come from this online thing we do. And part, in other words, I think we're going to have to find, we'll be in a lot more, a situation a lot more like Paul was in in the first century when he had to make tents mm-hmm, to keep, mm-hmm. in other words, being an apostle, being probably the leading apostle of his time was not a, a full-time paying job with benefits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the ministry was worth it to find ways to make it work. And that's what I think more and more of us will have to do. Well, I appreciate those words, at least personally, Brian. So thank you. Um, the book is How Do I Stay Christian? A Guide for the Doubters, the Disappointed, and the Disillusioned. Uh, this comes out May when? 24th. Okay, so I believe this episode will air uh, shortly thereafter, so the book will be available for purchase, I assume, everywhere books are sold, yes? That's right, yes. Great. Uh, tell folks where they can connect with you. Uh, my w- website is net. And uh, it's mclaren.net, and um, there's links there to my social media and to the uh, podcast they do with the Center for Action Contemplation and a lot of other resources. Well, great, uh, Brian. Thanks so much for the time. I really enjoyed the book, and uh, I wish you God's peace. Well, thank you, and please keep up the good work with this podcast. We need more people thinking about a better future <laughs> for Christianity. Thank you. Thanks. Peace be with you. And with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go. Do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.